This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This year, on a number of levels, whether that was the pandemic, the election, the rise of racial justice and protest movement, you know, YouTube has had to put all of those many years of experience into practice and has very much risen to the challenge. YouTube involves and actually demands a dialogue with your audience, asking them what they want and then delivering that. Understanding the data on what they're watching, it's a collaborative process. Hello and welcome to Intelligence Squared Business with me, Carl Miller. I'm delighted to introduce our guest today, Zena Aston. She's head of YouTube communications for Europe, Middle East and Africa, a leading communication strategy obviously for YouTube across that whole massive region and an expert in the changing models of content viewership spurred by the rise of video and mobile devices. Zena, hello, very warm welcome. Hello, thank you. It's lovely to be here. Right, Zena, well, here we are kind of staring at the end of 2020 coming towards us. Let's go all the way back to the beginning of the year, to February, March, and those those kind of fateful early months of the pandemic. Um, in those moments when we were all trying to work out what society would look like, really, um, what were you, what did you begin to see on YouTube? I mean, you must have felt that your platform and product was unbelievably central and important in, in, in determining what society would really look like. Yes. I mean, I think it, it was a fascinating time. I think everyone was kind of very shocked and unprecedented sort of situation where uh, no one had been faced with such a thing before. And we saw some really interesting um, effects on human behavior. Uh, and I think at those sorts of pivotal moments, there's always an interesting tension between technology and humanity. And I think that uh, oftentimes they're pitted against one another. But really, in this case, I think we saw how technology could really rise and meet a lot of human needs that had become evident through those early days of the pandemic and, and across the following months um, that uh, that we saw. Um, I, I think initially what we saw is people really coming to the platform seeking information. Um, we saw a rise in people searching for uh, an understanding of what COVID was, of COVID symptoms. Um, and as YouTube, we, we saw it very much as core of our role to try and help provide our users with that information and connect them to authoritative sources that would really help uh, give them the understanding that they, that they were seeking. So we did a number of things in terms of um, working with partners such as the NHS and other, the World Health Organization to provide information panels. So if you were to search for COVID, you'd get a little pop-up box that actually told you um, some of the, the proper health advice 
they point you to authoritative sources, whether that's local experts um, or news uh, outlets, to really help you get, get that context of what was going on. Um, we saw uh, since launch around 400 billion impressions on those knowledge panels over the course of this year. So they were very much used as well, which was great to see. Um, and in terms of authoritative news, you know, in the UK alone, we saw a growth on authoritative content of 65% in the first three months of 2020. And as a result of that, you know, sites like The Guardian, The Daily Telegraph, they surpassed 1 million subscribers in those first couple of months. Um, so that's, that was really kind of the initial trend that we saw was one of, of information seeking. Did you see um, kind of, and I remember those early months, you know, just almost that kind of you know, ravenous desire for kind of any epidemiological model or map that, that you know, could possibly exist. Um, did, did you kind of see public health experts and expertise then kind of almost like rise as this new kind of influencer across the platform? Very much so. Um, in fact, you know, one of my um, favorite channels in those early months was a retired NHS nurse who actually took to his YouTube channel to give really basic tips such as how to wash your hands. Um, and in fact, his video on hand washing has around 450,000 views, which is just kind of astronomical when you think of, of what that content is. So you've got kind of those, those local experts. Um, in addition, you saw certain YouTubers, creators that are existing on the platform that have quite an existing audience and quite a lot of influence actually start talking to some of those experts to try and give their voice more of a platform. Um, in the US, we had Phil DeFranco, who's a very well-known YouTuber, with something like six and a half million subscribers, actually talk to Dr. Fauci and do an interview with him. And it was a great opportunity for the expert to get out you know, his um, information to a much broader and much younger audience than often traditional media allows for. Um, and we had saw similar things in the in the UK with uh, a channel called the Jolies, who ended up uh, talking to an NHS uh, health expert. Mm. And again, just staying in those kind of early weeks for one more question before we move on. Um, you know, quite often it feels like YouTube allows these voices to be unearthed that that have genuinely kind of different messages from the mainstream or different expertise from the mainstream in one way or another. It, amongst these these new kind of public health commentators, doctors, influence experts, um, did, were they? Did you see any or, or many who were carrying a different kind of message? You know that were, for instance, like you know, expert in a kind of modelling that just wasn't being used in the mainstream, or, or were they largely kind of echoing and amplifying? You know, now very standard, very visible, and and um, well understood advice from places like the NHS. Yeah, I mean, I think you're very right. I think one of the things that YouTube affords is actually the rise of a very diverse uh, number of voices. So it's not necessarily your your standard voice, which I think is is um, is very good. But it also has uh, some areas that need to kind of be approached with with some caution. Um, so yes, we did see the rise of diversity of creators. I think. One of my um, favorite parts of that is you actually saw a rise of, of seniors um, starting their own channels and really starting to connect with people, less as an expert voice, but more as kind of a, a voice of wisdom or counsel. So, and this was a trend that existed across the world that wasn't just specific to the UK, but you saw, you know, a grandma in Mexico really start to give wisdom and advice on her channel. And although that wasn't technically an expert, you think um, it kind of speaks to that that dearth of um, those wise counsels, those voices, that family connection that we had um, that really came through 
uh, in those early days. Um, you know, I think also with the rise of the cacophony of voices, there were some that the rise or the threat of misuse was also there. So I think as YouTube, we were quite particular in terms of whose voices we amplified, um, focusing more on authoritative sources and really kind of removing the content that might be uh, inappropriate or harmful. I think that that was an area that we also moved quite quickly on in the first few months of that, because a lot of the things that we had been faced with were not things um, that we had ever faced before. For example, um, we we had no policies around COVID-19 because COVID-19 hadn't existed before. So how would we treat people suggesting different methods of um, uh, solving that or, or approaching that? And I think that sort of misleading coronavirus information, we really had to rely on authoritative sources and experts looking at the World Health Organization, the CDC, NHS, that sort of thing to really um, remove claims that uh, contradicted that expert local advice and ensure that the stuff that people are actually watching was um, was authoritative. What was it? Um, what was it like actually in YouTube or you know Google in those early in those early days? Because I mean, both you and Facebook and Twitter all moved very quickly actually and quite aggressively to kind of try and clamp down on the kind of infodemic you know, as, as it was so-called by the WHO. But but obviously, I imagine that as companies, you were just, just as hit, if not more so, by the pandemic as everyone else and having to kind of get accustomed to new ways of working. So how what was it actually like for you all on a day-to-day basis trying to do all of that? I mean, I, I think you're very right. You know, from a YouTube standpoint, from a business standpoint, we were all very much focused on ensuring that we were doing the right thing and making available the right information, the right tools for our users and, and for our creators as well. Um, from an internal standpoint, you know, we were all struggling with the same things that everyone else was struggling with. All of a sudden, not being at the office and working from home um, led to some very real um, issues, of course. But at the same time, I'm actually quite thankful because working for YouTube, working for Google, we're already fairly tech enabled. So, uh, you know, some businesses had to really completely re-envision their networking capabilities and how they worked and actually get people to use computers who hadn't perhaps used computers in the same way before, doing things like video conferencing. Um, whereas we were, we were already ahead in that. It's something that we do, video conference is something we do par for the course and have done for many years. Um, so in that regard, working together uh, wasn't as much of a difficulty. But, you know, from a, even from a, an enforcement standpoint, you know, sending our um, human reviewers home meant that we actually had to take a step up and over enforce on certain things. So we were relying more heavily on algorithms to actually police the platform than we had done in the past. And that did lead to a higher error rate. Basically, more appeals were actually correct. We had more false positives than we had done in the past, but it was a necessary evil in order to protect our, our staff and ensure that they could work from home um, without, uh, without the concerns. So, um, you know, from a, I think everyone from engineering to us in communi- uh, communications to marketing to our partnerships teams really did step up during that time. We all saw it as very important to ensure that we were partnering with the right people um, ensuring that our users and creators had the right information in order to uh, have um, a, a good re- interaction between one another. 
Um, even if you look at education, for example, we stepped up our resources around that. We had a, a learn at home um, platform on YouTube where people could actually come and find resources on uh, on education. I mean, we had something, it was astronomical, wasn't it? Like 90% of um, school-aged children were out of school at one point. And all of those people were coming online to try and find more information. We even saw a trend of teaching uh, teachers teaching teachers. So teachers who would start channels to actually try and help other teachers learn um, how to teach in this new environment that people had not been faced with before. And um, we saw it as our role as very much helping connect people with that information. If, if YouTube's role was anything during those early days of the pandemic, it was definitely one of connector, connecting people with information, connecting people with education materials, connecting people with each other. Um, and we as a, as a team really worked hard um, to help facilitate that. Well, let's move on. Uh, let's move on into, into the spring. You know, that blazing hot spring, such a wonderful, like kind of unbroken series of, of, of sunny days that we had. Um, and the word new normal, phrase new normal begins to be said more and more. Um, was it was it clear to you from quite an early stage that you that all these people who suddenly had lost something in the corporeal world would be turning to to YouTube to kind of try and rebuild that in the digital one? You, know, you mentioned teachers, and I'm, I, I think we might go through some other sectors as well. But was that changed role that you had for people? Was that was that obvious from the from the outset? Yeah. Okay. So there's a um, there's actually a cultural anthropologist which I find um, very helpful. Her name is Susan Resnicka, and she actually created a, a model of human needs, which is three key pillars. One is self care. The next is social connection, and, and the third is identity. And I think it's kind of a, a nice indicator of, of what are the basic human needs. They're actually a bit of a Venn diagram. They're all quite overlapping. One feeds into the other. Um, but we did see YouTube being used to kind of meet all of those human needs or try and seek um, a way to meet them. So for self-care, we actually saw people coming not only to Google symptoms um, or search for symptoms, but also to look for things like guided meditation videos or yoga videos, you know, an ability to try and handle the... Um, the stress cooking videos, for example, went up quite significantly. Um, I think the the social connection piece is one of the more um, fascinating ones because people's adaptation to this necessitated isolation um, has been quite eye-opening, I think, not just to speak to the actual trends, but also potentially for a more longer-term understanding of how people interact. Um, YouTube has long been known as a place to foster community and for people to come together from diverse ge geographies, diverse backgrounds, to really kind of congregate around particular ideas or um, niche areas of content even. Um, and we definitely saw that um, as we come through. I think one of the key moments in that springtime that uh, really comes to mind was this kind of unprecedented moment of collective viewing around this Andrea Bocelli Easter service. I don't know if you remember that, but um, Andrea Bocelli ended up doing this beautiful Easter performance from the Duomo uh, in Italy. And it was just uh, extraordinary. At one point, it had 2.8 million concurrent viewers. Uh, and now, it, I think in total, it had 28 million views within 24 hours, which is just, you know, first of all, the largest classical music live stream of all time. Um, and it was just that... Uh, that moment where everyone felt like they were watching the same thing and it really brought people together in, in a beautiful way. 
Uh, and we've seen a number of those examples across, um, across that time period. I mean, uh, religion being an interesting one as well. The um, Vatican started live streaming for the first time. <laughs> um, they took their channel and they almost doubled their subscribers in the first uh, month that they were on as they started to live stream some of their uh, religious services. And um, we saw kind of, again, that need for human connection around those really quite pillar aspects of identity, such as religion. I think that to me was a, a really uh, fascinating one. And we saw it, for example, in the uh, iftar. The iftar is, of course, the, the dinner um, at the end of the Ramadan day where you break your fast. And there was a iftar live stream that was actually the largest online religious live stream of all time. Um, records were broken and it was six Saudi Arabian creators who came together to live stream their iftar um, and the number again of concurrent viewers was just through the roof. So people seeking out other people in those uh, interesting moments. We saw a, a, an increase in live streams during that time, 45% more channels live streaming than had ever done that before. Um, and that was kind of one of those groundbreaking uh, pieces where you just saw how many more people were taking to YouTube to really reach their audiences. One thing that became quite popular early on are watch-alongs, uh, where people would actually get together to watch other people watching things. Um, a good example of that is a channel called AFTV, which is stands for Arsenal Football TV. Um, they're a bunch of Arsenal football fans. And with sports going away, more people actually came to YouTube to watch these people who were watching the football on television. They had something like 70,000 concurrent views uh, during a game at one point during that springtime. So again, that kind of pulling together of people and really, really trying to come together. I, w I wanted to go back to um, something you mentioned earlier in your answer, which is instructional videos, which I have long thought is literally like YouTube's traffic data on instructional videos is one of the absolutely most fascinating data sets that must exist yes. in the entire world bar none. Um, you know, the, the, mm. the, the fact that you can learn how to do everything from tying a sailor's knot to fixing your television on a video is one of the most transformative things that I think really happened over, over the last couple of generations. Now, you might not have looked at instructional video traffic use in any great detail and, you know, um, no problem if you haven't. But I just couldn't pass up the opportunity to ask whether there there was anything you saw there um, yeah. around um, strange new hobbies or, or trends that were happening. Um, you know, because we haven't really had the chance to meet one another face to face um, across Britain yet. Yeah. You know, um, so I'm just wondering whether when I go out of my house, you know, uh, um, when the vaccine's here, that everyone's going to have all these strange new capacities and skills and hobbies up there sleep. Yes. I, I, you know, it's interesting. Um, we definitely saw that. I mean, um, some research was saying something along the lines of 82% of people used YouTube to learn something new this year. So really we had a lot of people coming online and the stuff that they were learning as well was quite interesting. Um, I think everyone can kind of remember a few different social media phases where everyone was learning how to make sourdough bread. For example, we saw something like a 600 times increase in searches for sourdough bread at one point where everyone was like learning how to create a sourdough starter. Um, you know, the watch time on um, lectures around uh, learning new spoken languages increased sixfold year over year during that time. Um, and there were some really interesting ones as well where it wasn't just 
you know, one of the trends we actually started to see was a lot of um, genre blurring. So people were trying, were learning things, but at the same time, it's not your standard how-to video. So for example, one thing that became quite, uh, one channel that became quite popular was a comedic mathematics channel where I never knew math could be funny personally, but this channel ended up getting a, a significant number of additional subscribers because they were bringing comedy to learning math. So for a lot of students that were going online learning math, it was a nice entertaining or what we call edutainment sort of way to, to kind of get ahead in that. Um, and similarly, you know, people were, were learning everything from um, beauty tutorials, those increased, but again, that genre blurring where um, there was one particular channel that ended up doing um, beauty tutorials while at the same time talking through cold case files, like horror stories, real life horror stories. And so you're learning how to put your makeup on while also learning about these really interesting cold case files, um, which I thought was a particularly uh, interesting one. Um, one trend that is well known on YouTube is called the hashtag with me trend. Um, we've seen it in previous years, such as uh, hashtag study with me or hashtag um, you know, play football with me. And this sort of participatory learning was also quite popular. So, you know, we had people who were doing crafts, um, what we call craftivists, and they were teaching you how to do like DIY, sew your own mask. Um, and those ended up increasing again, something like 600% since, um, since the early days from about March, April. You know, if, again, uh, People, when it comes to gardening, that was another area that we saw a lot of people turning to YouTube to learn uh, how to garden. It was a particularly nice month, um, month or two in the spring. And so people were looking at, at getting um, some of their, you know, uh, outdoor gardens up to, up to scruff. Okay, well, to go back to my timeline, which I am doing a bad job at keeping us to, um, now, we're, now we're into summer. Um, I, 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 I want to talk about some of the kind of sectors that at this point are really coming to terms with the fact that at least for the near to midterm, they aren't going to exist in anything like the way that they used to. Um, and, and what you saw um, them doing when it, when it came to YouTube and what opportunities they saw. So let, let's begin in maybe the sector that was more classically devastated by people having to stay home than any other, the kind of museums and theatre and art sector. Um, did, did, what was the kind of move onto YouTube by these institutions and kind of did, did, did you see kind of innovation coming thick and fast or thin and seldomly from them? Um, how, how are they reacting to all of this? So I feel like, you know, if, if anything is characterized um, the early days and kind of those middle days of the pandemic, it is it could be called the great embrace. Everyone in terms of an individual sense, as well as traditional um theaters and such have, have really been forced out of necessity to embrace technology in order to be connected with an audience or connected with other people, be able to have that um, social tie once again. And we definitely saw that uh, on YouTube. We partnered with a number of uh, artistic institutions, whether that be museums or theaters or, um, as I mentioned, religious um, outlets, uh, film, uh, film sort of uh, festivals in order to really help them connect with their audience online. Um, one of my favorite examples is the National Theatre. So they ended up taking to YouTube and um, uh, showcasing some of the best of their productions to a global audience. They did a weekly National Theatre at Home series. They streamed around 16 plays over the course of the, the summer. 
Um, and they raised around $400,000 for charity on YouTube. Um, they hit over 18 million views on those 16 plays, which is more than the total number of visitors to London's West End theaters in 2019. So they saw huge success in actually adopting a, tradition, um, a technological solution to this. Um, the fact that they were able to get more viewers outside of their home country as well, you know, on YouTube, you, the UK is actually an incredibly well exported content base on YouTube. Something like 84% of views on British content actually come from outside of the UK. So it's a great opportunity for us to also get our culture to the rest of the world. And the National Theatre is, is I mean, they were brilliant. I myself actually watched quite a few of those plays during lockdown. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, and the Royal Opera House did the same. The National Ballet did the same. Shakespeare's Globe uh, also did a similar thing. They were uh, hosting some of their plays every other week. And that also garnered quite a significant uh, audience. There was a film festival where I thought this was quite an interesting partnership, but a number of film festivals came together to do a, um, what they called the We Are One Global Film Festival. And so that was the Berlin Festival plus the BFI really kind of banded together and, and enabled people to still have that experience of film through uh, through technology. I know people are going to hate me if I don't ask you that practical question of what actually works, um, because there'll be lots of people that have tried and probably also failed to kind of rebuild in the digital world what they'd lost in the real one. Um, I just wonder, like, looking looking now kind of across and let, let, let's let keep it in the kind of cultural and arts and kind of creative industries just just for some focus um were there particular kinds of either kind of campaign or institution that really seemed to be able to kind of break through and the noise and kind of reach people and and make people feel something i suppose in ways that the others simply couldn't yes i think that when it comes down to exactly what works and what doesn't work, there's a lot that we could actually learn from YouTube, established YouTube creators. And one of their kind of first principles is to know your audience, is to understand not only where your audience are, but what are they saying? What are they interested in? And part of that is engaging in dialogue, actually talking to your audience. It's, and that's where YouTube and online platforms really depart from traditional media, is where traditional media is very one way. YouTube involves and actually demands a dialogue with your audience, asking them what they want, and then delivering that, understanding the data on what they're watching, what actually um, they've enjoyed, what they haven't enjoyed, if you want it to be shorter or longer. Um, so it is, it's a collaborative process more than anything. You know, the audience and the creator really reflect oneself. And I think that's where we've seen the most success of traditional um, type uh, things coming online is really when they recognize that, when they're talking to their audience and understanding. Um, you know, one of uh, the ones that I personally liked was this, um, was that the Van Gogh Museum in the Netherlands actually did walkthroughs. So people really wanted to experience the museum um, and they understood that from their audience. And so they actually ended up doing a multi-part tour on their channel 
um, in 4K, so really high definition. And um, the first tour, which was of the Self-Portraits Gallery, it ended up getting something like a quarter of a million views, really because they had listened to their audience. They, they knew that their audience really wanted uh, to have an experience, almost a first-person type experience of the, uh, of the gallery. So rather than just uploading artwork onto their website, they actually did a walkthrough. And that, um, that was a, a really nice way that the audience, again, could feel like they were in the moment. Um, you know, there's, there's, it's hard to say, but there's never going to be a real substitute of actually going to a museum and feeling what it's like to be there. Um, you know, when I think of this, I always think of that section in Goodwill Hunting. I don't know if you remember that movie, but Robin Williams kind of says to Matt Damon, like, sure, you can quote me a soliloquy. You can tell me what's going on in the Sistine Chapel, but you could not tell me what it smells like or what it actually feels like emotionally if you're standing under the roof and, you know, you're looking up at that ceiling. And that's, that's kind of how I feel about this. It is, it is a great way to connect with your audience and really enable them to experience part of what you are and fulfill that need of connection. But it's, it's, it's no substitute for the real thing. Um, but what it does do is it also exposes an audience that would otherwise not be able to attend, um, even in normal times, you know, even post vaccine, where, you know, People aren't necessarily able to travel to the Netherlands to go to the Van Gogh Museum, um, but they can still experience it regardless of where they are in the world. Uh, and I think that's that to me is quite um, a nice way that that connection will last beyond beyond just this period. OK, well, we're, we're moving on in the year. Um, and um, it was going to be a busy one anyway, because we have the US elections coming up as well. Um, and, you know, uh, classically, I, I, I suppose, you know, it's Facebook and Twitter are often seen as the kind of main crucibles for political debate. But did you see on YouTube um, a kind of, you know, uh, a, a, a large use of it by people with any kind of political view, really, discussing and debating the candidates and probably debating with each other as well, um, as that just seemed to... for. A, for, for a while kind of just dominate the entire world's attention. It, yeah, it very much did. And political debate has kind of always been something that happens on YouTube. I think it's been really important for us to ensure that we have the right uh, policies and the right uh, procedures in place in order to ensure that that is a healthy political debate and that isn't kind of marred by any issues. Um, I mean, we, we had to up our policies around that to, to ensure that. Um, and I can talk through a little bit about what that was, but we definitely saw, you know, people on both sides of the spectrum, on all sides of the spectrum, really weighing in with their own personal opinion, unpacking facts, um, you know, this this idea of kind of a citizen newsery where people are really interested in engaging in that debate, kind of unpacking, doing deep dives into events and moments that kind of progress, I think. On our end, we needed to make sure that we were uh, at the top of our game, kind of removing the violative content from YouTube, really enforcing our policies, regardless of those political viewpoints or who expresses those political viewpoints. You know, we ended up updating our policies around this back in September to try and prepare ourselves uh, for what we what we expected. And that was, you know, again, we kind of use what we call our four R's. So it's, it has to do with removing some of content that might be misleading um, around whether, you know, voting claims or content that encourages interference in the election. We had to remove that content. We have established policies around hate speech and harassment and, and deceptive practices, and we were very clear in what content was needed to come down. We also want to raise up authoritative sources, as I mentioned earlier, making sure that 
we are providing context around certain uh, political opinions or certain misinformation um, to ensure that people have uh, the information about candidates, fact checks, um, an understanding of funding sources if a publisher receives public or government funding. Um, and we do that by having information panels in and around um, searches and content for that sort of topic area on YouTube. And then, um, sorry, go ahead. I was going to ask, Zaina, did, did, did politics look different on YouTube in 2020 compared to 2016? You know, I think yes in a number of ways. Um, it felt like there was much more urgency around this election where I think it, it felt a lot more polarized. Um, and that's definitely more of an anecdotal rather than data-driven insight, um, where I, I feel like there were, there was more conversation, um, than ever before around, uh, around the election. And, um, it was a lot more emotive. Uh, and I think people, it could be because of the incredible year that we've had and people being under so much adversity um, that we saw that kind of that rise in, in the emotional aspect of it. And it is it that has been an interesting trend, actually. Um, Twitter released a study not that long ago saying that they'd seen something like a 20% increase in the use of emotional language on Twitter over the course of the year. Um, people actually using more uh, emotional words like happiness or joy or, or sadness. And I think that is, that really speaks to kind of a, a, a more emotive world. You know, we've just, we've been under such adversity that we've, and I think that's true of the pol political system as well, or the political realm as well. You know, I, I think we as a platform has al have also gotten a lot better since 2016 in terms of ensuring that um, the sort of conversation and debate that happens on YouTube is a healthy one um, and that we are able to rigorously enforce our policies and have those procedures in place such that we can we have that kind of structural resilience we can be quite flexible and nimble because a lot of this stuff is not predictable um, and and we just need to remain nimble so that we can create the right policies and uh, ensure that we're enforcing them in the right way in the moment well um, you know and as we step into the present day and i suppose now begin to humbly cast our gaze into the future a little let, let, let's just stay for one more question with this idea of polarization because I, I suppose that's the the word that at least for many of us looking at the US elections kind of summarized the whole thing and and now kind of synopsizes so many worries that people have around both the health of the US political system but then also the way in which so many other societies including the UK seem to be in their own ways heading as well um what what's your kind of thinking within the kind of teams in YouTube that that think about conversational health when it comes to polarization? Because it kind of it seems to me that a lot of the kind of capacities of YouTube, especially to be able to identify and serve a identifiable constituency, which are so powerful if you're the British Museum actually become problematic if you're a fringe political party? Yeah, so I think, you know, for us, it's, we've very much been investing in that part of the platform and the policies and the procedures and the resources and the products to, to kind of live up to what we see as one of our top priorities, and that is responsibility, is ensuring that 
that conversational health, as you called it, ensuring that the platform is a safe place for the communities and users that we um, that are part of our ecosystem. And um, you know, there's a lot of this is this is a very complex area. It's not um, something that is is easily solvable. Um, and I think it is also worthwhile noting that there's a there's a broader societal challenge that we're that we're in the midst of, and you know, we. Um, extreme and polarizing content has kind of become more prevalent in the media at large, not solely on YouTube. And there's, there's actually an interesting increase in demand for that content. Um, there was a research study put out by Cornell, uh, a couple of months ago, um, a month ago, actually, um, that would actually suggesting that the growth of this content isn't necessarily <clears throat> due to social media, but due to people coming directly from external links. So, people who had been either sent a link or had searched for that content um, on those platforms to really kind of directly go for it. So there's there's the demand side that um, that is, I think, the broader societal challenge that is, is quite a difficult one to address. Um, in terms of the supply side, I think that's where, you know, we need to make sure that we're improving, that we're doing the best we can. Um, you know, there are it doesn't mean there isn't an issue on, on YouTube. And I think it is something that we need to address and we have done quite a bit of work, but it's, it's kind of an ongoing uh, area of work. Um, and that is to, again, not only making sure that we're providing context for those polarizing um, opinions, but also removing content where we need to remove that content. Um, we have long had strict policies that govern what content is okay and not okay on YouTube and anything that kind of speaks to um, real world violence, incitement, um, that is not okay. And that is removed from, from the platform. Um, so those polarizing views, those extreme views, I mean, in and of itself, they, they should not, they could not, um, we don't allow content that kind of promotes hate or promotes, um, violence. And we've had to further, you know, uh, create, uh, additional policies that really speak to that. Um, for example, we updated our hate and harassment policies to remove conspiracy theory content that um, alleges a particular individual or a protected group is, is complicit in a, in a theory that has real world harm involved. Um, and I think that that is some of the stuff that we've seen when it comes to polarizing or extreme content is some of those really uh, far out conspiracy theories um, that we've had to really crack down on. And again, as, as I was mentioning earlier, this idea of structural resilience it's ensuring that we kind of build in that flexibility. Um, we take our policy development really seriously in terms of what content stays on the platform and what's removed. And we um, have a number of steps. We consult with outside experts. So we ensure that we actually have experts telling us what is okay and what isn't okay and areas that might be concerning that wasn't concerning before. Um, and then we go through a whole process where we have to write the policy in such a way that one human reviewer and another human reviewer would make the same decision when faced with that content as to whether or not it was violative. And we need an accuracy rate that's quite high in order to allow that policy to be put into our uh, regular rotation, regular place. Um, so there's there's kind of the removal side. There's the raising up context and authoritative information, making sure that people who are searching for those extreme views are perhaps also seeing information that um, links to outside sources like Wikipedia or Encyclopedia Britannica that gives them context and really kind of tempers that a little bit. Um, and then this idea of reducing borderline content, content that isn't necessarily a violative, but is potentially not the best content. Um, and that 
is around recommendations. So we've put in place certain things that allow us to reduce recommendations of what we call borderline content. And that has had a significant impact uh, as well in terms of the spread of that. I think one of the things we're quite concerned about in an area that we're tackling is this idea of virality. We don't want bad content to become, uh, to get more fuel from our platform. So we wanna take away the levers that we have um, to ensure that doesn't happen. And then of course it's rewarding good content. Um, making sure that we uh, are only that advertising, so we've got advertising policies as well as our content policies, but and those advertising policies are even more strict, such that we are not allowing people to earn money off of content that is perhaps unsavory. Um, and I think that together is kind of the the way that we approach this. And there's there's always more work to do. I think it is important to note that this is a fraction of a fraction of percent of content on YouTube, like the vast majority is content that is, um, you know, educational or, or fun or entertaining or community building, um, you know, violative content or borderline content is just a, a very small fraction of a percent. Thank you, Zena. Well, um, let's look back then over the year um, and just and just get your reflections on a year, obviously, which completely defies any attempt at description. Um, what what was your proudest moment in 2020 on YouTube? You know, I think it it is how YouTube has stepped up and been that place for um, people to come together. I'm really proud of what YouTube has done over this year. Um, I think providing that platform for companies, brands, artists, everyone to reach the audience that they weren't able to reach in real life. That place of being of social connection as well, people being able to reach out to one another. Um, it's been incredible to see the rise of even more diverse creators than we've ever seen before. I think that's definitely one of the lasting trends is that more than ever before, audiences have been open to um, stories and storytellers of a different background that don't necessarily fit the what a YouTube creator should be type profile. Um, so that I, I'm very proud of. And then the um, different sort of formats as well, the, the sort of creativity that has come to the fore people really experimenting with the platform and, and innovative formats that allow them to reach their audiences in new ways. And I think, you know, for me, I think YouTube providing that source of um, connection, hope, information in such a time of adversity is something very much to be proud of. And the big lesson, what's the big lesson of 2020? I mean- Oh goodness. <laughs> I mean, I think there are multiple, <laughs> multiple lessons. Um, you know, I would say for, for brands kind of to go back to the lessons that can be learned from a YouTube creator, it is, you know, really embracing technology, really um, getting to know your audience, being where they are and retaining flexibility is really, really important. Um, collaborating in ways that you haven't before with other uh, artistic bodies or other creators, other, um, in order to broaden your reach and really expand your audience is really helpful. You know, I think, and retaining that level of dialogue, I think, I think if anything, the pandemic will be kind of the lasting legacy of the pandemic will be an acceleration of trends um, that we've been seeing in the previous years. There's been a sense of confidence for both audience and creator who perhaps weren't necessarily used to technology before. Um, but that had kind of been pushed forcefully over the threshold and, and uh, you know, the late adopters have had to embrace technology. And I think that will be kind of one of the lasting legacies of the pandemic is this, these people who 
are now used to ordering their groceries online or connecting people with uh, with people over video conference or seeing their favorite museum on YouTube. Um, there's no kind of putting that back in the box, right? You know, people, and I always use my mom as an example, she is now so much more confident with technology. She's not afraid to call me on video conference as she was, you know, in years prior. And I think that that'll be um, around for a while. Do you think we might add YouTube itself to that kind of last thought that you just had? So in a way, there's an increased confidence from YouTube as a company, really, in the mm. uh, kind of in the midst of a crisis, its position from essentially trying to represent a neutral platform to becoming one which is more confidently able to say there's certain kinds of information which we will and will not allow to propagate across our platform. Is that is that another lasting legacy, do you think? Yes, I do agree. I think YouTube um, is recently 15 years old. And I think this was very much kind of a year of coming of age. I think YouTube matured um, beyond belief. I think our and this is this is building on a number of years of work. You know, it's not something that just kind of at a snap of a finger happened this year. We have put in a lot of investment, a lot of um, resources into building that capacity. And I think this year on a number of levels, whether that was the pandemic, the election, um, the rise of, of um, racial justice and, and protest movement, you know, YouTube has had to put all of those many years of experience into practice and has very much um, risen to the challenge. I think, of course, there's still work to do, but um, as a year of coming of age, I think YouTube, both in terms of its own maturity, as well as being seen for what it really is as well, a platform to connect with information, education, and each other, um, has, has, definitely, uh, has definitely been the case. Well, Zena, thank you so much. I suppose that was your, your year of 2020 on YouTube. Um, that was really fascinating. Thank you so much. Uh, and if you did enjoy today's podcast, um, please don't forget to subscribe and share it with friends, of course. Uh, I'm Carmilla, and you've been listening to Intelligence Squared Business.